Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stack. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. It is Thursday, September 17th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, our colleague Helen Branswell is here to discuss how caving to the White House has eroded public trust in U.S. health agencies. Next, we'll interview health communications researcher Heidi Twarek about how governments around the world are communicating with the public about the pandemic. Finally, we'll do another lightning round with rapid-fire takes on Gilead's Big Buy, the latest from D.C., and the fate of biotech's most famous investor conference. But first, a word from our sponsor. RNAi therapeutics treat the root genetic cause of disease rather than the symptoms by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Alnylam has pioneered RNAi therapeutics by translating the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNAi into an innovative new class of medicines, which we believe has limitless possibilities. Learn more at alnylam.com slash statnews. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash statnews. As we get closer to Election Day, U.S. health agencies are under increasing pressure to do the political bidding of the Trump White House. And the resulting conflict has led to stained reputations, low morale, and widespread concerns about compromised science. Stats Helen Branswell has been covering the growing credibility crisis in the U.S.'s coronavirus response, and she joins us now to talk about it. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, guys. So let's start with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which has been under consistent pressure from the White House. This week, you talked to current and former CDC insiders about the performance of agency director Robert Redfield. What did they tell you? There is huge concern at the CDC uh, about, one, the state of the outbreak in the United States, and two, the damage that's been done to the CDC's reputation throughout this outbreak. You know, early on, there was the testing debacle which was clearly on then, but since then, the the agency's been completely sidelined by the administration because its experts were saying things that didn't align with what President Trump was trying to get out in terms of his messaging about the coronavirus situation getting better, returning a corner, trying to talk about the coronavirus in the past tense. So that's been a huge worry for them. More recently, there have been issues where Political operatives have been rewriting CDC guidance and even trying to rewrite journal articles that are published in a CDC journal, which is just a red line for anybody in science. So, Helen, is there a consensus on what's going on with Redfield himself? Is the issue that he's overly deferential to Trump or do people think that he accepts the party line? I think the thinking about Dr. Redfield is that he is not the right person for the job, wasn't the right person for the job before this, and is not the right person for the job in a crisis like this. He doesn't have a public health background. He is reportedly not a very good listener. And he also has communications problems. He misspeaks at times. He's not clear. This was evident yesterday in an appearance before a Senate subcommittee. In terms of, you know, whether he's towing the party line, the thinking is that he just isn't taken as seriously at the table as some other people are. I mean, obviously, as time has gone by, the cast of characters around the table has changed, and some of the people who were 
in favor earlier, like Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci are not in favor now. Now, uh, Scott Atlas, the neuroradiologist from Stanford, is the person who seems to have the president's ear. But nowhere in there did it seem like Redfield had the president's ear. You know, the thinking is that he just isn't strong enough to effectively convey the public health messages that the agency would like put on the table in the discussions here. So beyond the coming election and, of course, the ongoing COVID-19 crisis, what's at stake for CDC in the long term in this situation? Well, you know, public health is all about public trust, and they've lost the public trust. So going forward, there's going to have to be a rebuilding operation. And it remains to be seen how that can be done, how quickly that can be done. If there's a change of administration and a strong CDC director is put in place, one would expect that the agency will be trying hard to regain its its position of authority and, and trust within the public. But it's not going to be an easy task. So this issue, of course, is not isolated to the CDC. We had a similar conversation recently about FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn and the concerns that he might fold under pressure from the Trump administration and approve a COVID-19 vaccine before it's demonstrated safety and efficacy. So the FDA has repeatedly promised to uphold its usual standards. How much credence are outside experts giving that promise? People are worried, obviously, because the FDA has buckled to the pressure from the White House uh, on several occasions in the pandemic. I mean, notably the hydroxychloroquine emergency use authorization, but also more recently the convalescent plaza emergency use authorization. It's been clear at times that the president has been putting a lot of pressure on the agency to help him solve his political problem. And that has everybody worried that when there is some data on COVID-19 vaccines, that FDA will move too quickly to approve them and and try to push them out into use. So Helen, you also uh, recently spoke with the billionaire philanthropist uh, Bill Gates, who has spent years warning that the world needs to better prepare for pandemics. So what's his take on the U.S.'s response? He was dumbfounded, really. I've only interviewed Mr. Gates a few times. He's pretty even keeled when you talk to him. This time, the tone of his voice, the pitch of his voice was incredible. He was like, this is unbelievable. Um, you know, he was floored by what FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn said when he announced the, um, the emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma, when he said that it showed a 35% survival benefit, which of course was not correct. And he said, like, this is third grade math. Can you? <laughs> he just was stunned. And and, you know, horrified, could not believe that the United States was doing so badly. Talked about, the, you know, how badly testing had been doing, saying, you know, the country has more PCR machines than anywhere else in the world. He called the U.S. PCR central. But, you know, still, there's a huge problem getting testing done and getting testing done in a time frame that makes it useful. Helen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 
Next up, we're going to talk about how different nations around the world have communicated with the public about COVID-19. Yeah, some governments have been praised for being forthright and science-driven in the way they've communicated about the pandemic. Other countries, most notably the U.S. and the U.K., have been hit with plenty of criticism for public health messages that are confusing or not based in science. Joining us to talk about all of this is Heidi Twarek. Heidi is a health communications researcher and an associate professor of history and public policy at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver. This week, Heidi and a team of researchers put out a report examining the COVID-19 communication strategies of nine different nations, Senegal, South Korea, Taiwan, Germany, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, New Zealand, and Canada. And Heidi joins us now to talk about it. Heidi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So Heidi, among the governments that you looked at, which one has done the best job in communicating about COVID-19? Oh, it's a great question. I think if I had to pull out a couple that were best for very different reasons, I'd say Senegal, South Korea, Taiwan, New Zealand, and British Columbia. They all took extremely different approaches, but they followed some very basic principles that we lay out in the report, including simple things like having transparency, communicating about social values, and having very clear definitions of what they meant by success in combating COVID-19. So by contrast, the United States and the United Kingdom have received a lot of criticism for the way officials there have communicated with the public about the pandemic. What have they done wrong? Uh, what have they done right is another way of phrasing that question. Let me lay out a couple of things. I mean, it begins with even the simple basics. If you ask 10 people in the United States, what does success look like in fighting COVID-19? You would get 10 completely different responses. If you ask someone in New Zealand what is success, they understand that it is eliminating COVID-19 in New Zealand. If you ask someone in Sweden, what does success mean? They understand that it means a sustainable strategy over the long run. So even if people have thought about, well, has Sweden chosen a good strategy epidemiologically? What we know is they communicated that strategy really quite clearly. So I think that was a sort of base level problem, um, a lack of transparency. Um, importantly, guidelines that are often orders that fluctuate surprisingly swiftly. We see that in the United Kingdom as well. Sometimes orders come down seven minutes uh, before they're about to be enforced. And they're so complicated that nobody really understands them. What we've seen in places like British Columbia that's worked very well is you have guidelines that give people some room for autonomy. So you say something like, look, the maximum number of people who can gather is 50. Um, if you as a workplace or as a restaurant are going to open, you need to submit a plan about how this is going to be safe. But we give you some autonomy to decide how to do that. So a good strategy doesn't mean orders from the top. It means guidelines that are clearly communicated that give people some room for autonomy, but where they actually have to have some sense of what success in fact looks like. And we see all of these kinds of basic principles getting violated in uh, the US and the UK. Another effective strategy that, that you mentioned, I think it's linked to that, is governments that are not shaming people for, for breaking the rules. Could you talk a little bit more about that and, and why it's effective? Yeah, it's actually, I think, quite counterintuitive because we, we've seen so many people uh, shaming on Twitter and elsewhere and saying, we need stricter rules, we need more enforcement, more fines, etc. Um, but what we find counterintuitively is that uh, places that focus on uh, building trust, 
giving some level of autonomy and using fines and shame games as a last resort actually get much higher levels of compliance. So, for example, we compared two provinces within Canada, so we could compare places that were quite similar, British Columbia with Ontario. We saw in Ontario a lot of blame game, shaming, etc., uh, lower levels of compliance, and also the use of fines, which sort of escalates uh, the whole situation. Whereas in British Columbia, there's been much more of an emphasis on trust in the population. Do not shame the few people who seem to be contravening guidelines. And that has worked much, much better. And I'd say the final thing that it's done is it's also resulted in far less backlash. We've seen a few protests in British Columbia against masks, but they are tiny uh, compared to places where masks were made mandatory and there were fines. So if you're actually thinking about how to get more people to comply, you've got to take this counterintuitive move of trying not to have blame games, shaming, and enforcement with fines. It, it doesn't work as well. So Heidi, I think we all know that the, the science behind the pandemic changes rapidly. And that must make the communication side of it really tricky. You know, the usefulness of masks, for instance, is, is, is a good example of where, you know, a, opinion about mask use uh, has shifted from early in the pandemic to today. So I wonder how rapidly do you think governments um, communicating about that shifting science, especially when, you know, the evidence is still building? Yeah, I think one of the things that, that some governments have done is a good job in communicating uncertainty. We've seen, I think, many examples of governments doing a poor job of communicating uncertainty. Uh, but we've seen some instances where, where governments at least say, this is what we don't know yet, but what we are looking into. And that has, I think, been very helpful because it helps the public trust that this government is honest about what it doesn't know and will tell you when it knows something better. Something that we also found to be quite effective um, in Norway, for example, was also admitting mistakes, right? There's this, this tendency, I think, from a lot of governments uh, to put spin. We've seen that in the UK, for example, not to want to admit missteps. But we found in Norway, uh, when the prime minister actually um, said later, I'm sorry, the lockdown was probably much too stringent. We didn't necessarily need to do that. That actually ended up building trust because the government was willing to admit where it had done something wrong. So I think that's actually a very important lesson because as we learn more and more about this disease, there are going to be missteps. And if a government admits them, it will be in better shape than if it tries to constantly spin everything it's doing as completely flawless. So one of the most alarming things we've seen in the communications realm during the pandemic has been the spread of misinformation online, particularly on Facebook. How are governments communicating with the public about the spread of misinformation? It's been an enormous problem. But actually, what I found quite inspiring is to find that there were some places where it's been less of a problem than others. And one of the key reasons for that was public health communicators getting out early and often on as many channels as possible. So we found, for example, in places like South Korea, misinformation has not been a big issue. Part of the reason for that is that the South Korean Centers for Disease Control have an office of communication that has been dedicated for several years now in figuring out how do you communicate on as many channels as possible, you do it frequently, and also you bring the public in. So we've been talking quite a lot about what public health officials should do, but one thing they should do we recommend is pull in citizens and civil society to tell you if your communications are working, to tell you how to reach your population. So in South Korea, for example, back in February, they brought in 50 members of the public to help them improve their communications. And we found that that actually does have a strong effect on preventing the spread of misinformation. There's obviously a much 
bigger conversation about platform governance and how you stop things spreading virally. But if we're talking about what do you do as a government right now, you get out early, often as many channels as possible so that people turn to you first and not to Facebook for information. So finally, Heidi, among your many credentials, you have the distinction of having taught Rebecca Robbins uh, many years ago in an undergraduate course about the history of news. So tell us about Rebecca as a student. Oh, it's a great question. Uh, So I remember Rebecca as one of the eager student journalists and somebody who had one of the key things we need in a journalist, ability to write very fast to a deadline and produce something that you never thought could be quite that good in about two hours on maybe 60 minutes of sleep. (laughs) Amy, and that's the Rebecca I think we know. (laughs) That's true. Heidi, that is a very nice and charitable thing to say about my procrastination as a college student. (laughs) So Heidi, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, I think it's time for another lightning round. Damien, do you want to kick us off with the first item? Absolutely. So a constant source of anxiety, apparently, among people is what the sizable drug maker Gilead Sciences is going to buy to grow in the future. And over the weekend, we got an answer to that in the form of an acquisition of a company called Immunomedics for $21 billion. Adam, $21 billion uh, sounds like a lot of dollars. <laughs> Damien, that is a lot of dollars. Yeah, this is a deal that uh, yeah, it broke over the weekend, courtesy of the Wall Street Journal, uh, on Saturday, confirmed on Sunday. And yeah, like you said, you know, this is a deal that sort of brings into the Gilead fold a company called Immunomedics. And really, what it brings into the fold is a breast cancer drug called Trodelvi. It's recently approved for um, triple negative breast cancer, which is a particularly aggressive type of breast cancer. But the drug is also being developed for other forms of cancer. And uh, you know, a potential blockbuster in the making and the kind of revenue generating product uh, that Gilead desperately needs. So Adam, you and our colleague Matt Herper had a great kind of TikTok piece looking at how this deal uh, got hammered out. And it involved a meal of steak and lamb chops. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, Rebecca, in the time of COVID-19, you know, uh, these sort of face-to-face meetings that CEOs need to have to hammer out uh, big M&A deals. So what we learned uh, about this deal was that the CEOs of Gilead and Immunomedics decided to break bread with each other, have dinner in New Jersey. Uh, They chose a restaurant. And of course, uh, restaurants in New Jersey these days don't allow indoor dining. So they had to sit out on a makeshift patio. They asked to be uh, seated a little farther away from other diners to kind of be discreet. But yes, we heard that uh, the Gilead CEO ordered steak and Immunomedic CEO had lamb chops. All the kind of details you want in a TikTok story about a deal. And so Adam, how did investors react to the deal? Well, you know, as you might expect, Biotech investors love deal-making. They love M&A. And so this was a big one, $21 billion. So the response, as you would expect, it was really strong. The most closely watched biotech stock index was up uh, about 10% uh, Monday through Wednesday. We're recording this on Thursday, obviously. But yeah, so you know, you're seeing a, a pretty strong reaction overall in the sector. You know, People certainly uh, hoping for more uh, similar deals in the coming months. So before the entire world was derailed by COVID-19, a major political issue in this country, at least, was that of drug prices and and whether the government can rein them in. So over the past couple of weeks, we got news that President Trump, in a sort of 11th hour move, is considering forcing through an executive order that would tie what the U.S. pays or what Medicare pays for certain drugs to how much those drugs cost overseas. 
but it's a little more complicated than that. So if that all sounds familiar, there was sort of an earlier version of this idea that would have only applied to Part B drugs, which are administered in, in doctor's offices. Uh, but what's interesting about this, this new version of the proposal is that it also applies to Part D drugs, which are sold in pharmacies. Yeah, and as our colleague Nick Florco pointed out in a story about this new executive order, and similar to previous executive orders um, issued by Trump, the details kind of get lost in the shuffle. Uh, and in this case, the Trump administration has not yet released any formal regulations to actually implement this policy. Right. And, and even if they tried to kind of work an end around means of, of instituting it before Election Day, it would almost certainly be held up in court by the pharmaceutical industry, which kind of underlines... I think something that they won't come as a surprise to anyone, which is that it's basically impossible for this to take effect before November 3rd. But we're talking about it. People are writing about it. And it could, I think, is the thinking behind this. It could have some political capital for Trump, who will take anything he can get, I can imagine, considering the polls. And drug pricing is an issue where he has polled fairly favorably compared with, with Joe Biden. And there's a lot of recent polling about you know this specific issue, pegging prices to overseas costs, um, finding that it's pretty popular in a bipartisan fashion. So you know, this might not be a policy that ever comes to fruition or is even worth thinking too hard about. But as a election season news item, it could end up being important. So next up, Damien, you wrote this week about a potential new treatment for COVID-19. That's right. So, you know, among the sort of potential armamentarium of things that might treat patients who are actually sick with COVID-19 are man-made antibodies that would mimic, you know, the, the body's natural response to a foreign infection like the novel coronavirus. And this week we got the first major bit of data on one of those antibodies, this one comes from Eli Lilly, and they ran a small but placebo-controlled trial that found, well, it found a lot of things, and it's worth digging into the details. The headline is that, you know, one of the doses they tested appeared to help patients clear the virus from their bodies faster than placebo. And, you know, when you zoom out on the patient population, there appeared to be a benefit in preventing hospitalization compared to placebo. But once you dig into the numbers, because this was such a small trial, it's really hard to know anything definitive about the efficacy of this antibody based on what we saw. So I feel like the, the consensus among outsiders was that this is a good start, but we're far from knowing whether this antibody or whether any of the antibodies in development will actually be a home run for COVID-19. And adding to the concerns there, there are some issues about how this would potentially be manufactured if it were to be shown safe and effective, right? Yeah. Uh, what struck me here was that the kind of the effective dose in this study, the one that worked, was 2,800 milligrams, uh, which is, you know, 2.8 grams. You know, you don't typically see medicines dosed in grams. Uh, that's a lot. That's a lot of drug. This is an injectable drug. So this is not something that like a patient would have to swallow. We're not talking about a gigantic pill here. Uh, it, it's an infusion. But at the same time, I mean, that does sort of bring up manufacturing issues. I mean, you're going to have to make a lot of drug to treat patients. Is that right, Damien? Yeah, exactly. And that's been on the minds of companies in the antibody for COVID-19 space, I think, from the outset that you know, there's just a limited amount of production capacity in the world for something like this. And we've seen some agreements on the front end where companies agreed to collaborate on manufacturing. So if, if one company's antibody succeeds and the other fails, there have at least been promises made that the failing company would kind of lend its uh, factories or its manufacturing capacity to one that succeeded. But 
that's definitely going to be an overhang with this technology in general. This isn't just pressing pills or even spinning up vaccines. It's a much more complicated process. Okay, moving on. Uh, the 175-year-old scientific magazine, Scientific American, uh, made some news this week. For the first time, it made a presidential endorsement. Uh, it endorsed Joe Biden and said in a pretty strongly worded editorial that uh, Donald Trump had badly damaged the United States and its people because he rejects evidence and science. Rebecca Damien, do you think that this first ever endorsement uh, by Scientific American is going to convince anybody? I have a very hard time imagining anyone <laughs> whose mind was changed by the endorsement of Scientific American. Like, if you were on the fence about Donald Trump to date, I, I don't think the scolding of a news magazine is going to change your mind. I don't know. There might yeah. be a sizable population of on-the-fence nerds out there. You, know, <laughs> you, you never know. Okay, moving on. Uh, we finally got confirmation of something that I think everyone was expecting for quite some time. JP Morgan announced officially that its big healthcare conference in January 2021 will be virtual. So there will be no wandering around the streets of Union Square in San Francisco. I guess that means that no no trips to San Francisco, no overpriced hotel rooms, no one's going to be charged $50 just to sit at a table for a meeting. Well, I'm sure like the entrepreneurs will find a way. Um, life finds a way, as, as they say in Jurassic Park. And I'm sure someone will manage to charge you know, $200 to sit in a, a Zoom room for 10 minutes. It does present kind of like an existential crisis for this meeting, though, right? Because I mean, we've talked about this so often that the official programming of the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, which I assume is what will be offered virtually, is like the 7th, 8th, or 700th attraction to going to the meeting every year. It's instead like the serendipity of meeting people and you know stuff we've, we've kind of gone on and on about. So when you subtract all of that, what differentiates JP Morgan from, you know, whatever healthcare conference probably happened last week that none of us even noticed? Yeah, that's a really good point. We've all sort of pondered and pre or predicted sort of the demise of so-called JPM week and whether that was going to happen. And um, here, uh, you know, starting in January, we're not going to be there. So I don't know. This is a this is like a, a test case to see, you know, what it's like without the most closely followed, highly attended biotech conference in the world. Yeah, it feels like we're, we're like on a break from like a volatile relationship. And then we'll see if next January we want to start this all over again or just move on with our lives. does it for another episode of the read out loud thank you to heisen tempanado who produced this week's episode Alyssa ambrose is our senior producer and rick burke is our executive producer and as always we'd love to hear from you tell us what you liked about this week's episode what you didn't like and how you're feeling about the prospect of virtual jpm you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com and if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 